2: On this edition, Gracie Elvin joins us from Canberra to talk about the new mentoring programme for young and not so young women pro riders. And we dive into the complex and mysterious world of Japanese Karen racing. Not Kieran, that's something different, as you'll find out. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. The Cyclists Alliance, the organisation which supports female pro riders and fights for equality in the sport, has launched a new mentoring scheme. TCAMP, the Cyclists Alliance mentoring programme, aims to help women riders at the very beginning of, during, And crucially, after their careers. I spoke to Gracie Elvin of the Cyclists Alliance, two times Australian road champion and Flanders podium finisher, who retired herself last year, and Rouleur writer Rachel Jarry, who turned to journalism after a long spell racing full time in Belgium. Gracie explained that the mentoring programme is a development of an existing idea.
1: It did live in the early stages at the start of the formation of the Cyclists Alliance co-founding board member Carmen Small began it as quite an informal little program, but she'd paired quite a a few riders and it was quite successful. I think there was a lot of um, satisfaction gained from that, just matching riders to each other, but we didn't quite have a good structure around how to run the program long term. And last year, myself and my colleague, Rose Hogeboom, who is our TCA treasurer, Uh, We're both retiring from racing and we thought this would be a perfect time for us to rekindle the mentor program. We decided to put a few months of thought into it, get some feedback from some of the participants from the past and figure out how we could structure it better and provide better support to the mentors and the mentees and what else might be a unique way that we could set it apart. And that's where the podium partners came in. So that was the press announcement a couple a few weeks ago. So we have five major brands on board. And they're providing support to our program and also potential opportunities for riders who are looking to transition out of the sport but wanting to stay in the cycling industry. And we believe that is a really crucial step in the development of women's cycling overall is to have more women on both sides of the fence in the leadership roles and in brands to create a bit of better diversity and also create more support for women in sport I think having role models and mentors in your career is one way to kind of enhance your support network, to be helped along the way by someone who's been there before, um, but also to feel like you have people to look up to once you transition out of the sport as well. And I think there just hasn't seemed to be opportunities for women to stay in cycling after they finish racing. And we see now more riders going into DS positions and into brands um, into journalism even. So it's really cool to see more women out there representing the sport, Just not, not just in the racing kind of format.
2: And it's based around sort of three stages of the riders' careers, isn't it? Sort of, if you like, before, during and after the transition to after. Um, let's talk about the section specifically. First of all, what sort of advice and help and mentorship is offered before um, the riders turn professional
1: the first stage which is pre-career is something that we haven't launched yet we're using this year as our kind of training ground to see how well we can get this program running so we're really focusing on riders in UCI teams at the moment or or kind of like that pre stage that they're already racing being matched with current riders to kind of help them in their career and then that transitional post-career side of things. But ultimately, long-term, we want to have that pre-career, so we'll be targeting clubs and federations so we can kind of capture that junior and under-23 and inexperienced level of riders that are racing at that um, either junior or club level because, yeah, grassroots is really an important part of any professional sport and something that we want to get Um, our hands into eventually but we have our work cut out for us now just within pro cycling and for helping riders retire as well so we're focusing on that first but we'll definitely be aiming to get that first um, pre-career pillar going by next year
2: and and the um kind of during career part the mentorship um for younger riders, that's actually active at the moment?
1: Yeah, we have quite a number of um, younger and inexperienced riders. So we have riders aged 18 in, and up to their early 20s. We, we also have a handful of inexperienced riders that are in their 30s. So it's not just a young person's game to be needing support in your beginning of your journey. Certainly, there's more younger riders than older riders in that mentee kind of Uh, category but we really want to support everyone and we don't have really strict rules about who is in what section of our program it's really an individualistic approach that we're trying to take into giving the support that each person needs
2: that's an interesting uh, point isn't it That the women's sport in particular does seem to attract people who sort of transition into it maybe from other sports later in life.
1: Yeah, it's, it is different from men's cycling in that regard. I think for men's cycling, your career is almost over if you haven't been picked up by a world tour team by the time you're out of under 23s. But in women's cycling, a lot of riders aren't coming into pro sport until their late 20s and sometimes in their 30s and they are physically maturing I guess, at different rates too, or they're coming from different sports or they they did a degree or they've had a career before coming into sport too. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why the age ranges are different for women's cycling, but everyone does need support at the end of the day. <laughs>
2: Uh, Rachel, um, you've sort of transitioned recently from full-time cycling um, into uh, journalism with Ruler. From what you've seen of the proposed program and the program how it's working, uh, wh- what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think it's I think it's so needed as well. Like from my experiences, there was nothing that really prepared me for how much everything changes. When you go from training full-time to working full-time, your body goes through a lot of changes. Um, Like mentally, it's quite tough. So yeah, it's definitely something that's really needed. And it would have been like super helpful for me because I think often you can leave the sport and maybe think that you don't have skills because like for me, I did cycling straight out of school. So I hadn't been to university. But what like people need to realise is that Living life as a professional athlete, it does give you so many skills that are transferable into the workplace: teamwork, dedication, um, and also such a specialised knowledge of cycling, which you can't really get elsewhere because you've actually been in the peloton. So, yeah, it was something that I would have probably really benefited from, um, and I think it would be—it's a really great programme.
2: Because you were helped um, by the Dave Rayner Fund, which does give help to those sort of starting out, especially uh uk riders who want to race in europe how useful was that for you
3: that was really helpful and as well as like financial support it was also meant that we had a community of riders um all in belgium all british riders at a similar age so you didn't feel like you were in like a foreign country on your own too much so yeah if that like something at the mentoring program will do is share that with riders who aren't on day brainer front who aren't from the uk and i've really benefited from that so yeah i think it's going to be really really useful
2: Uh, gracie obviously you're recently retired from the highest level of the sport yourself how was that transition for you
1: yeah it is challenging in many ways i was an athlete since i was a kid you could say so in my whole adult life was geared around being an elite athlete Um, I have nearly finished a degree, but I did that while I was racing. I didn't finish my degree before I started racing and I didn't have a a proper career before I started racing. So I'm trying to reinvent myself now after only ever really knowing life as an athlete. So I certainly have some withdrawals of uh, the highs of the sport and traveling and doing crazy things and training all day. So yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what my new normal is, but I did really think about how to set myself up for this year and, and set certain expectations like I knew it would be a challenging year. I knew I needed a good support network around me. I knew I needed things to do, but I also knew to be careful about not putting too much pressure on myself straight away and just having a bit of a rest, and I'm calling it a bit of a gap year. so, I've got plenty to do and keep me busy, but I don't have to be good at anything, which is kind of nice as well to just let all that pressure off because I was trying to be the best at something for a very long time.
2: In your experience sort of in the pro peloton at the sort of elite level, are people thinking about what's going to happen when they retire? Is, Is it something that's kind of front of their mind or are they just focused on the next race, the next contract?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And and you can say yes and no to that. For female athletes, I'd say it's more common that they're thinking about the, the next thing, and that's because of the financial implications of being a female athlete. We're only really seeing the last five years in cycling better um, salaries for women, but that's still not across the board. So there's still probably the majority of the peloton aren't le- earning a a good enough wage that they could earn somewhere else in another job and there's a a good chunk of the peloton that is earning really good money so they are able to focus more and to save. So I think in some ways, yes, females are looking ahead and figuring what what they can do next, um, what education they need or what kind of career pathway they need to look at. Well, they've already had something set up before they came into the sport. And in another sense, I've certainly talked to a lot of athletes and a lot of support networks for athletes that have said that they don't want to engage in transition conversations because it's almost like they're in a denial phase or they feel like if they talk about it, it's going to impact their performance in the now. So they'd rather just not think about it and focus on the now and be present, which is a really important skill in some ways, but in others, you have to think about the transition. Transition happens from the first day you become an athlete. It doesn't happen at the end. It's it's something that happens at, when you sign up. The day you sign up to, to be an athlete, you know that you will have an expiry date. It's a young person's thing. And I think if you deny yourself that thought process, you're only setting yourself up for some really um, tough periods of time when it hits you. <laughs> so my advice is to think about it and just n- not worry that it's going to impact your performance in the now, I think it'll only enhance it because you know that it's a finite period of time.
2: What do you miss about being a pro racer, Gracie?
1: Uh, lots of things. I, I always just loved riding bikes and I'm really proud that I chose a sport that, yes, I was good at, but I, I loved first. I actually wasn't a very strong junior rider and and even in my later teenage years and early 20s, I was still like trying to push through that kind of barrier of getting good and I just persisted at it because I just enjoyed bikes. I love bikes. I love, I love the training. I love the racing. I love the puzzle of racing. I love the complexity and all of the layers that you need to be a good bike racer. I'm going a bit off tangent here, but I I miss cycling because of all of those things. I didn't do it for Olympic medals. I didn't do it for the wins. I did it because I loved it. And those things were a bonus. Not that I got an Olympic medal, but (laughs) you get my point. I miss the highs of the racing and the highs of the wins, but also just when you're sitting on a start line and you look around you and there's people in cafes and people on the start line cheering and you realise that they're there for you and you realise that most people wish that they could be on that side of the fence. I definitely miss those moments when, yes, you're very nervous and you're scared, but you most people wish that they could be you. So I miss those moments, I think, the most, as well as just being able to ride your bike all day, every day. And and even now, every couple of months, I have to just go out all day on my bike and just put everything else aside and just be out there because it's still so important to me and it gives me so much joy. I just can't call it a job.
2: <laughs> Rachel, I know you're still racing. I've seen you uh, doing it recently. Is it is it different now? It's no longer what you do? full time
3: yeah like I think it's something that I do more for enjoyment and I just if I if I want to do like see my friends rather than race I don't do the race um whereas before I was like I yeah I always put it first put my training first before everything and I guess there's like highs and lows to that because in some ways I really miss the freedom of just being able to look out the window and it's sunny so I can go for a ride whereas now you know I have to work so it is all about like managing your time differently yeah what, what has been really nice is that I can just go out on my bike and not look at a power meter not worry about how many hours I'm doing just ride for fun and I think that yeah like from transitioning from racing full-time you've you become to realize how much bigger the sport is than just racing and how there is still so much enjoyment to get out of it even if you're not a pro cyclist and just because you're not racing anymore it doesn't mean you shouldn't ride or you can't race um, just locally and do it for fun, which is what most people do anyway.
2: Rachel, thank you. Gracie, uh, thank you. And good luck uh, with the programme and uh, your continued uh, gap year. And um, Thank you both for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert. But I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinawi, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication go to ruler.cc I'll leave you to it
2: This is Ruler Conversations brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance no more fixed upfront premiums instead your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month your maximum monthly price is capped but the savings are all yours Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the lacquer collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts with lacquer. If you want to leave, you can anytime. If you head over to www.lacker.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULEUR. <music> Japanese Karen racing is colourful, complex, Crash filled and generates billions of pounds worth of gambling revenue every year. Although it seems steeped in Japanese culture and tradition, it's a relatively new sport. The very first race only took place in 1948, and it's had a turbulent and controversial history ever since then. The Guardian's Tokyo correspondent, Justin McCurry, has written a fascinating book which tells, for the first time in English, the full story of the sport although there's still some debate whether it is actually a sport.
0: Yeah, it's an uncomfortable combination really of a sport, an exhilarating track cycling sport and a form of gambling that's uh, that's sanctioned by the state, by the Japanese state. And if you look at the way the Japanese athletes go about becoming a professional k racer, what they have to do to get their their license and how they live their lives as professional racers, it's also a, a... a quite an odd but very intriguing way of life. So it's a combination of three things, I guess. Um, it's difficult to talk about it in the Japanese context solely as a sport. There is always this um, this very obvious and strong connection with gambling.
2: So the history of it is that it was sort of established after the Second World War when much of Japanese industry and, and housing was in ruins to to generate funds to rebuild society. So a bit like a sort of national lottery that we would have in the UK.
0: That's right. Yeah, its its origins lie in, in the ashes of war. What happened was a couple of old soldiers returning from Japanese, well, what was then Japanese occupied mainland China came back. And they wanted to do something, I think, to uh, to get their own business underway. Certainly, it wasn't entirely philanthropic, but they also wanted a way to repay their former comrades. And these were the sort of working men who had, had been in the Japanese Imperial Army and had come back to a country, like you say, that, were, that had been practically destroyed, including by two nuclear weapons that, that landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They wanted to somehow raise money by offering people who hadn't really had much to celebrate for many years, some sort of leisure pursuit. And uh, they, they hit on the idea of bicycle racing, among other things, and originally wanted to build a, a velodrome near Tokyo. Um, but, it, you know, it was a time of, of chaos and austerity, political instability. The Americans were still the occupying force in Japan at that time, of course. So that never happened. But they did find a willing ally, if you like, in the in the mayor of this City down right down in Japan's southwest called Kokura. It's now called Kita it's its name has changed, but, but then it was known as Kokura. And that mayor saw well, he shared with those two old soldiers a vision for putting on bicycle races, allowing people to gamble on them with, with the permission of the state, of course, and then using that money uh, to start rebuilding the uh, the local infrastructure roads, bridges, hospitals, social services, but also, of course. Uh, giving people something to look forward to at long last.
2: But it's always seems to have had a, a bit of a sort of a grubby reputation, really. It's always the, the Japanese society seems to, uh, seems averse on principle to gambling, to, to gaining money uh, without working for it.
0: That's right. It's telling, really, that K-Rin is only one of four sports on which it's legal to gamble in Japan, the others being horse racing, which has been around for a lot longer than any of the others, of course. There's motorboat racing and there's a form of speedway, which is the least popular of the four. Well, anyway, it generates the least income in terms of betting receipts. But Japan does have an an uneasy relationship with gambling, and that's partly due to Kering's early days. Um, I mean, the riders themselves were a pretty rough lot before the authorities started introducing sort of minimum requirements to to get a professional uh, license. They were just often just guys who were pretty tough and wanted to to make a fast buck, and then inevitably, Japanese organized crime was involved. There were you know match fixing which doesn't happen today, certainly happened back then in the, in the 50s and 60s. There was violence often fueled by uh, copious alcohol consumption at, at velodromes. When you think of Japanese society today and how supposedly ordered it is and how polite everyone is, it's difficult to imagine that velodromes in the 50s and 60s were often chaotic, dangerous, and very unwelcoming places, at least unwelcoming if you were, uh, if you were a woman, for example. And it's that, that backdrop that has, although things have changed dramatically in terms of the way Kairin is organized and how, how fair and transparent it is, there has always been that sort of, ah, oh, well, isn't that something that the, uh, that the Yakuza, the Japanese gangs get involved in and isn't them race fixing and aren't most of the men who go there sort of unemployed drunks? And it's an image that the sport has really struggled to shake off over the, over the decades.
2: Kirin, or Kieran, as we know it, uh, the sort of international version of it, um, is very different, isn't it? Because yeah, if I'm ever explaining it to someone who doesn't know much about track racing, I just say it's the one with the uh, with a little man on the moped in in front. But in in Japan, there's no uh, man on the moped, and and the the rules. Uh, to an outsider seem incredibly complicated.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a good thing, actually, that since Kirin became a, a UCI sport and obviously it made its Olympic debut back in 2000 in Sydney, that you've got the kirin pronunciation for the international version and Kirin as the pronunciation for the original Japanese discipline because they are really almost totally different sports. When you watch an Olympic K-Rin race with the a guy on the on the derny at the front, you've got six riders. The rules are very strict. Uh, there's no sort of physicality. There's a lot of speed, obviously. They ride around 250-meter tracks, which are much steeper. They do fewer laps, so they cover a shorter distance overall. Here in Japan, you've got uh, velodromes of anything from... 333 metres to 400 and a a few 500 metre outdoor tracks as well. So a completely different look about the sport to start with. You've got nine riders and what they do is it's an individual sport. So all of those nine riders, they start their races wanting to win. You know, there, there are quite big sums of money at stake. Of course they want to win, but there's an element of collaboration. So what you get is riders who have, perhaps graduated from the Keirin school the same year and who are from the same region of Japan and may even train together at the same velodrome week in, week out, will collaborate. And this is what what gives rise to what we call the line in Keirin. So you could have nine riders and three lines of three cyclists. So one, they might be from the Tokyo area, another from the Osaka area, another from way down south in, 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 uh, in Kyushu. And the riders within those lines will collaborate. Well, how do they collaborate? Basically, it comes down to another aspect of Japanese culture, the senpai-kohai relationship, the hierarchical structure of, of Japanese society. So you'll have the youngest guy in the line will ride at the front to take the pressure off the two older riders uh, behind him they in turn may do him a favor by blocking other riders from coming behind but there's there's a certain element of collaboration and you can see in some races it's very clear you you'll see a young rider who will take the front protect his colleague from from the headwind complete 95% of the race and then just completely lose all all strength you know the lactic acid takes over and he's gone but he's done his job and that's to to create a pathway for his colleague to to possibly End the race in first place. So there are those two very overarching aspects of Japanese culture. First of all, a strong regional loyalty, and second, a certain degree of deference—a much higher degree of deference towards one's elders and seniors than than there would be in, say, a you know an Olympic K-rin race, which is fundamentally an individual individual event
2: I've read uh, your explanation of the line in the book which is very clear I'm still not hundred percent sure I completely uh, I completely get it but presumably the gamblers um, who who are, I guess are the important people here presumably they understand it do they and they understand the tactics
0: yeah if they're keen Karenering uh, watchers then they will over over time come to understand before the race probably what each rider is is going to do at the beginning obviously there is there's a huge degree of uncertainty otherwise it wouldn't be a, a it wouldn't function as a gambling sport but they have an idea of who's going to be in what position as those nine riders sort of spread out along the track once the pacer has has, has come past them at the start of the race and like you say the pacer in, in the in the case of japanese Kairin is another professional earning a bit of pocket money and he, he takes them round on a, on a bicycle, not, not on a moped. But yeah, gamblers will know what the formation's going to be, who's going to be leading out whom, and what they have at their disposal are just an extraordinary uh, amount of facts and figures, records from races over the last three months, their blood type, their age. They get it, There's a point system in K-Rin, so you can, if you want to keep things very simple, you can see which rider in a particular race has amassed the most points over the course of the season so far and think, OK, well, I think he's going to win. But it is obviously quite a bit more complex than that.
2: Now, you had access, didn't you, to the uh, Keren School, the Institute of Keren, as it's called now. Um, and not many outsiders are, are let in there. What was it like?
0: Well, having spent quite a long time in Japan, there were parts of it that didn't surprise me. Um, You know, life life is very strict and I I expected that, so... You know there are regulation haircuts which you quite often see in uh, in in youth sport in Japan, particularly baseball. There's a huge baseball tournament involving high schools every summer, and pretty much every every player will have their hair cut very very short. That that applied applied I should say rather than applies to the Karyin school. There were regulations for hair length for for the women. They start their day very early with a warm up outside in all weathers. They used to strip to the, the men at least used to strip to the waist to do that, but that that disappeared uh, a, a few years ago. But there were certain elements that did surprise me, and that was the total separation between the the male trainees and the female trainees, even to the extent that the women who, uh, I think there are about 100 women there from one year to the next, and a much larger number of men, the women sleep on a completely separate floor. Forming personal relationships really isn't encouraged at all. They go through 11 months basically of daily weight training and endless time on, on rollers and of course they have four, I think it's four, including the Olympic velodrome which is quite nearby which is the only 250 meter one in the area. I think they have four velodromes at their disposal so they, they spend a lot of time uh, at the velodromes and of course the school is set in the hills near Mount Fuji so they do a fair bit of hill climbing as well. But it has modernized under its current principal, um, who's a former caring professional. They brought in Benoit Vetu and Jason Niblett, who are former French and and, uh, Australian track cyclists. They brought in new training methods. I think there's um, more attention paid to nutrition. They certainly have a more international outlook than they used to. Rules on never being able to use your mobile phone have have been relaxed. So I think they're allowed to use them for a certain number of hours every, every month. Um, regulations on haircuts have gone as long as their hair is not so long that it starts to interfere with the with the placement of their helmets, which are obviously the most important part of their their, their gear. So things are, and they they they're learning English as well. I think once once a week or, or thereabouts, which was something they never used to do. So it's it's modernising, but um, but very slowly. And you know, it's quite possible that if the Olympics go ahead in Tokyo in July, and as I think we all think they do at the moment that that could give kirin another boost and perhaps raise its international profile and and help that modernization process move along a bit
2: because presumably that is needed because kirin in japan seems to be well, it's certainly well well past its heyday and uh, and and not nearly as popular as it, as it was i
0: think kirin's done a good job over the last 73 years of of sort of weathering various storms, starting with the austerity of the post-war years, and then, you know, the violence and controversy that attached itself to the early years of professional k and then there was a political backlash with certain politicians wanting to ban k altogether, and certainly not have any velodromes built in, in their neighbourhoods. And then when the Japanese economic bubble burst in the late 80s, that was another challenge, but Kairin has, has managed to overcome these these obstacles. And it's, you know, even since the Japanese economy sort of started experiencing its most difficult period sort of since the early 1990s, Kairin's managed to keep ticking along. I mean, it still generates billions of dollars a year in betting ticket receipts. So it's it's hardly a poor sport. But attendances are down. And I think what the problem is now is that it's coming up against this big structural issue in Japan, which is something that affects other aspects of the Japanese economy and society, of course, and that's, it's a shrinking, aging population. Given the the, uh, the typical demographic of your your uh, average velodrome goer, it's only to be expected that fewer people are going to go and watch. I hope this isn't the case, but it could be on the cusp of some sort of long-term decline, which is why I think the authorities, i.e. The, the, really what I mean by them is the Japanese government, are taking these steps now to try and broaden its appeal with, uh, you know, easier online betting, late night meets, so people that, that don't have spectators, so that people can only bet online. But I think things like the return of women's Kieran and um, facilitating online betting have, have certainly helped, but it certainly hasn't brought Kieran back to its sort of 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, heyday.
2: As you say, uh, a women's Kieran was uh, reintroduced a, a few years ago, but it was uh, done in uh, a really sexist and awkward way,
0: wasn't it? It was. And it's such a shame because the very first Kairin race in Japan in back in November 1948 uh, it featured a women's race. So in that sense, you know, the, the Kairins, uh, the inventors and uh, the Kokura Mayor Hamada, were, were ahead of their time in that respect. They, they struggled to find decent uh, women riders. So they actually went round I think one of the local post offices and the local municipal government and just said to female members of staff, Do you fancy riding a bicycle this time next week at the first ever K-Rin meet in Japan? And and it it worked out. And for a while, women's k was really successful until it got to the stage where it was dominated by a very small number of riders and and it was far too easy to predict the the results of races. So it sort of its popularity declined, and the decision was taken in the '60s to to discontinue it. But it was it was brought back in 2012, as you say. That was um that was the year uh, women's karen appeared at the Olympics in London, and Victoria Pendleton won the gold medal. But it's the the whole image surrounding women's karen these days. I think needs the authorities need to take another look at it and decide whether it wants to portray these highly trained female athletes who are adults as girls uh, and dress them in pink and, you know, ask them in questionnaires what their ideal type of man is and, uh, and all that sort of nonsense. I think if they did that, then that would, again, perhaps be the the, the catalyst for a for greater international, even regional interest in, in women's career. And I think it's it's high time they had another look at the women's sport it's great. It's great to watch.
2: It is odd, isn't it, that in Japan, Kering has become a, uh, a sport f- mainly watched by um, old, um, as you say, old, uh, unemployed uh, men, whereas in the UK and Europe for a, a long while, it was an obsession of the really hip, young, urban um people who obsessed over whether their bike parts were njs approved or not and it had a, a completely different sort the of following over here
0: yes there is there is a huge discrepancy between the sort of uh the, the fixie culture the, the cachet attached attached to having a, a bike you know with a, a karen frame and njs parts and all the rest of it and the way that that's viewed here it still is very much uh, a sport from from for men over a certain age i've seen changes um the velodromes themselves have a lot to do with this because they, like I said, they were very uh, unwelcoming places for, for women for a long time. In fact, there was a time when they didn't even have uh, women's bathrooms. Um, so that shows how interested they were in, in, in attracting uh, female spectators, but that's changed. A lot of velodromes are still fairly old and uh, you know they were, they were well past their best. They were built a long time ago, but a lot of them have undergone redevelopment. A few of them have been rebuilt. And they're certainly more welcoming places for women and families. But of course, again, you're always dealing with this sort of background uh, of Japanese attitudes towards gambling. Because if you if you encourage women to come or if you encourage families to bring their children for a, an afternoon's racing on a Sunday, then people will object to the fact that there are children present at a velodrome where people are betting on, on, on bicycle races. So it's, it's really tough. And for that reason, I think the foreign men and women who come over every year with the men's sport in Japan and with, with women's care in, take those all together. And, and I think that the future of the sport in its entirety probably lies in attracting some sort of international attention. Now, whether that means, you know, relaxing the uh, gambling laws to, to facilitate online gambling for people who are not in Japan, I don't know. I The Japanese government works at... Such a snail's pace on reforms of this kind—it could take take forever. Do
2: you think it's likely to be around
0: in ten or twenty years? Oh yes, I think I think so. Yeah, I don't think there's a big enough movement either socially or politically at the moment for for Japan to look elsewhere for its its gambling options. There was a there's been a lot of talk about legalizing casinos. The only casino you can go to in Japan at the moment would be an illegal one. Probably run by by organised crime, so there's, there are no casinos, there are no bookkeepers, you know, no bookies on the high street, absolutely nothing like that. And the Japanese themselves, even though they might not like to admit it in polite company, are keen gamblers. A lot of them go to South Korea to to, to casinos, to Macau, to Las Vegas, of course, sometimes to Europe. So there, there is an appetite for this form of leisure. And I think you've got horse racing and motorcycle racing and motorboat racing, but the thing that keeps bringing people back to care or at least this is what lots of punters and, and other people told me while I was researching the book, is that it's all about, it's it's about a man and a woman and his or her bicycle, which makes it unpredictable. And it makes it far more interesting, particularly if you're gonna bet a few quid on, on, on the races than say watching somebody go as fast as they can in a, in a motorboat. So I think Kairin will be around in five, 10, 20 years. It will probably be around for another 70 years. It's just, I'm not sure at this point what form it will take. My personal hope is that, it, that there are Kairin leagues formed in other countries, that there's more collaboration, that there are more foreign riders brought over to Japan who don't have to do the 11 months of Japanese language tuition at the K school, because obviously that's a huge barrier for them. And I'd also like to see, um, given that South Korea is the only other country in the world with a professional K Rin um, circuit, it would be great if, if the South Korean and Japanese riders resumed their biennial competitions, because that was, it had its issues, but it was a huge novelty. And I think. Um, people really miss that.
2: Okay, Justin McCurry's War on Wheels inside k and Japan's cycling subculture is published by Pursuit Books. Justin, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks very much, Ian.